He was claimed for $50,000 last October. Now he has a reserved spot in the Kentucky Derby starting gate. We'll talk with the trainer of tax. Plus, for the first time ever, there was horse racing in mainland China. We'll talk to someone who was there and get a feel for it on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the straight, it's a hit-bumping finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab tab of the ESPN app. Claiborne Farm has been around for over a century. Many of the sport's most influential and successful horses have passed through Claiborne Farm. Round Table, Bold Ruler, Secretariat, Mr. Prospector, and the list goes on and on. But last October, Claiborne Farm entered a two-year-old gelded son of Arch in a claiming race at Keeneland for a $50,000 tag. He had finished second in his debut a month earlier at Churchill Downs. Would you believe seven claims were entered for this cult, whose name is Tax? A computer randomly selected the winner of the claim, and it was Hugo Lynch, who promptly sent Tax to relatively unknown trainer Danny Gargan in New York. Gargan immediately entered Tax in the Remsen Stakes in early December at Aqueduct. Tax hit the board, finishing third, then, Tax started this year his three-year-old season in the Withers Stakes. And they're into the stretch, and it is not that Brady off the turn in front. Our brain trust bearing down taxes intact toward the inside, trying to squeeze on through here. Coming to the final 16th, our brain trust not that Brady and tax on the inside. The three of them across the track, tax on the inside. Our brain trust not that Brady fights on between those two. These three coming down to the line in the winners, and tax does it. Tax by a head on the wire. Danny Gargan then bypassed the Gotham Stakes and went straight to the Wood Memorial where Tax closely chased home the winner, the highly regarded Tacitus. In so doing, Tax solidified his Kentucky Derby point total to 52, which is more than enough to guarantee a starting spot. And by the way, it's not just the horse who was a claimer. Danny Gargan's known as a claiming trainer. And Danny Gargan joins us here for the first time on In the Gate. What was going through your mind when you saw Tax report home second in the Wood Memorial? Well, I was kind of expecting it between me and you. I wasn't in shock. I, I figured he'd be one, too. I, you know, I told the jock, we missed a work going in the race, but I said, look, let's, let's take all the, all of that, of, you know, play, factors out of play. I said, there's going to be two horses or three go to the lead, sit third or fourth. And I said, I want you to make the lead at the quarter pole and try to open up as far as you can. If we run second, it's okay. We get in the derby. Yeah. You know, when you get in those fields and things get crazy, you kind of got to be aggressive. So we took it to him. And we got run down, but that's okay. The next time we can take our time and be a little more patient because we're in. I don't know how patient you can be in the big one, though. Well, we can be patient enough where we can sit second. You know, we moved in the stretch, not in the turn. And it's a big stretch there, but he, he he sets up close in the race anyway. After the withers, you know, I gave him a break. He get a lot of time off. 
Well, yeah, and there was speculation about him running in between the Withers and the Wood, maybe the Tampa Bay Derby or the race at Turfway Park. So what was the thought about going straight to the Wood? Well, I thought about doing it. He ran a really big number in the Withers and with the time. And then, you know, it's a long campaign for three-year-olds if you push on them too much too early. And I didn't want to come to the Derby with a tired horse. But it's a ballsy move with his point system because if he's not one-two in the Wood, I don't get in the Derby. That was the only thing that was concerning. It was a little bit, you know, it makes you a little nervous, makes you think a lot. But now that we're in, it's more relaxed, and uh, things things are going great. So tell us how he wound up in the Remsen after the claim it came on someone else's recommendation. Well, Karen's a really good friend of mine. He's a really great person. And uh, I was working some horses. He broke off, and I guess four or five lengths behind some other horses, and he grabbed the bridle and took off. And he worked as good as a horse could breeze. And I was like, damn, he worked good. And Karen looked at me and said, who's that? Kieran McLaughlin you're talking about. Yeah. And he asked me, who's that? And I said, well, that's that colt that I claimed to Kingland or Gelding. I said, I claimed him to run on the grass. I said, but man, is he working good on the dirt? I said, I was going to run him in a starter on the grass. And he said, no. And that's, uh, I said, what would you do? He said, I'd supplement him and run him in the Remsen. I said, really? He said, Yeah. He said, if I had a horse to work like that, I'd run him in the Remsen. So I thought about it at night, and I talked to him the next day. I said, do you think I should do it? He said, yes, you should run in the Remsen, Danny. you got nothing to lose. So I, we supplemented him, and uh, long story short, you know, he ran a huge race that day and uh, couldn't be prouder. I mean, the horse that won the race I thought was a, a absolute serious racehorse. He ended up getting hurt. And the horse was second's a serious horse. You know, anytime Chad Brown runs, barely nails it to wire, you run big because Chad's horses always run good. He's a great horse trainer. And uh, just lucky to be uh, in the situation we're in. Well, it's always nice of Kieran McLaughlin to spend somebody else's money. Now, that <laughs> win in the Withers came despite a troubled trip. What did Tax get out of that race? You know, obviously, he learned to, to settle, get in behind horses, take dirt. He relaxed real, you know, going down the backside, he was forced to relax and sit in behind in the pocket and be patient. Uh, he stumbled at the start. He is fast out of the gate. Even though he stumbled that day, he could have been on the lead. But he t- he got a lot out of that race mentally, and he grew up a lot after that race. And he really started working even better after that race. His works are really good. Track was a little funny a few days at Aqueduct, and you're going into things, and you have to be patient. So I decided not to breeze him one day because I didn't like to track him. So we missed a whole work one week. And I think that's why he came up a little bit short in the wood. I think if we would have been on the outside instead of the inside late in the race, I think it could have been a different outcome too. Cause he got that rail was really bad and we got shoved right down on it. Took, you know, they were bouncing around them off each other down in the lane, but got a little tired. And I think he'll get a lot more out of that race and go forward to the Derby. Trainer Danny Gargan joins us here on In the Gate. He'll send out tax in the 145th Kentucky Derby on May 4th. By the time the weekend of the Wood Memorial was over, your horses had made 66 starts this year. By comparison, Todd Pletcher's horses had made more than 250 starts. How big is your stable, and how do you make ends meet? Well, I have a smaller stable, and we do quite good. I mean, we're high percentage. All our horses run really well. I'm making ends meet. New York's a little hard because everything costs so much, but we have, we have stable in Kentucky now this year, and we did good in Florida. So, you know, it's hard if you don't win a lot of races, but we were on 66 races, and I think we won 16, and, you know, eight or nine seconds and, like, ten-thirds. So, you know, we're high percentage, and that's how we make ends meet, by winning. If you win, you can make it meet, but you have to win. That's the key to this game. So the whole key is winning, and you have to have the right kind of owners and the right kind of different things just so you can win. 
So how many horses do you have altogether, roughly? Just 40-something. For those who don't know, Danny Gargan spent six years as an assistant to two-time Kentucky Derby-winning trainer Nick Zito. What was it like to work for him? Well, you know, Nick, you know, he's bigger than life characters. He carries his heart on his sleeve. Nick's fun to be around. He's he's an emotional person. It's it's a lot of fun. You learn a lot from a guy like that, too, because you're coming into these kind of races and uh, you've been around these kind of horses. i got to give Nick a lot of credit to the horseman I am today, and uh, he's and we're, I was actually talking to him this morning at Kingland. He's excited about me having a horse in the Derby. It's, it's an exciting time. And we're going to run a filly on Oaks Day in the in the grade one also, an older filly, Divine Miss Grace. So it's going to be a good weekend for us. Don't tell me Nick made you a Yankees fan. <laughs> I do have a Yankees hat. <laughs> I think you have to learn from Jimmy Riccio. Let's go Mets. <laughs> I like Jimmy, yeah. And then uh, I trained for Flying P, and he's a big Yankee fan. Uh, Nick did take me to a Yankees game when I was a kid, and that's uh, I haven't been to too many baseball games. I've been to several Cincinnati Red games just because I'm from Kentucky. But, yeah, Nick took me to see the Yankees uh, when I was a kid. He was training for Steinbrenner, which that was a fun thing. We got to sit behind the dugout, and that was pretty pretty cool. So you must have worked with some of his big horses back in the 90s, like Storm Song? Yeah, Storm Song, Louis Gutierrez, and Bronald Song. uh Star Standard, Love That Jazz, Diligence. I worked with a lot of good ones. Nick had a really powerful stable, and it was pretty impressive there for a while. Now, though you've obviously been around several of Nick's best horses, if you win the Derby, that'll be your first grade one win ever as a trainer. How prepared are you for the pressure cooker of not just a grade one race, but the most famous race in the country and all the media attention it brings? (laughs) Well, I don't get nervous, so it's a little better for me. And, you know, so a lot of people sit and think about things all the time. I'm more, you know, I'm not going to change who I am. I am, you know, I'm just a kid that grew up in the south end of Kentucky, and I'm not going to change that. I'm not nervous at all. And like I said, I, I think going in the wood was a little more nerve-wracking for me than it will be the Derby because of the point system. You have to get the points to get in. So, you know, we have the points we're in, so it's just going to be, I think I'll enjoy it. And I went and I took a Philly one of grade two there last year on Breeders' Cup Day, the first horse I ran at Church announced as a trainer. And uh I enjoyed that day. So I don't I don't expect to be too worried. I slept three hours wood day, I took a three hour nap. I don't even know if I could do that on a regular day. <laughs> yeah, I took a nice three hour nap and then went to the races. I have a tremendous assistant trainer and he gallops the horses, he does a fabulous job and uh you know, as long as he gets over there and he's healthy, he'll run big. But uh, I'm not nervous about it at all. You started to allude earlier to the way the race will be run and how you want him to break and everything. I mean, the most successful trainer in the entire world, Aidan O'Brien of Ireland, experienced the Derby for the first time last year with Mendelssohn. He finished last, and O'Brien used adjectives like fierce, savage, and ruthless to describe how the Derby is run. What can you do to prepare your horse for that kind of race? Well, it's a different kind of you know, situation. Our horses are running in America, and he shipped over. It's a little different. Our horses are a little bit more used to the crowds and ever the way you know the way it is. My horse is a gelding, so he's he's more relaxed than some of the other people who have the big colts. Uh, that might be why I'm a little bit relaxed. I don't think we're going to have any problems walking over on Derby Day. He's going to walk over and smile. He's not going to get upset or hot <laughs> or rattled or nothing. He's going to. You know, he'll walk over like, you know, like it's no big deal. He's a cool guy and he's not going to be upset. And, uh, 
you know, everybody can put a negative on anything if they want to. You know, if he'd have wanted, he probably wouldn't have had that attitude. It's all about how they run that day, but I'm thrilled to death to be running in the Derby. So if I run good in it, it's even better. But it's a big accomplishment just to be in the Derby. What would winning it mean to you? Well, it'd mean the world. I mean, anybody grows up in a horse race, and that's a race they want to win, you know? Everybody wants to, if they're a horse trainer or a jockey, anybody that grows up in horse racing, that's the race they want to win. Well, we certainly wish you the best of luck with tax. And thank you so much for a few minutes, Danny Gargan. Best of luck on the first Saturday of May. All right. Thanks so much. No person has ever walked on Mars. No man has ever gazed upon a Kardashian woman and survived unscathed. And never before had there been a thoroughbred racing card conducted on mainland China. Until now, we'll talk with the trainer who won the very first race run there after the break. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. As most of the world knows, the last great untapped market in the world of Western business is China, the country that has almost one and a half billion people, roughly one-fifth of the world's population, but has been exposed to relatively little of the Western world's consumer offerings. On the southeastern side of China lies the island of Hong Kong. It was under British rule, but reverted to Chinese control in 1997. The island remains a special administrative district of China, though, operating almost as its own country. Almost, that is. Many practices that are not allowed in mainland China are allowed in Hong Kong, gambling among them. So it was a little odd, and yet understandable, that the Hong Kong Jockey Club, which operates arguably the most successful horse racing business in all the world, would try to dip its proverbial toe in the water by trying to bring thoroughbred racing to the mainland. You'd think it would never happen, but in fact it has happened, sort of. The Hong Kong Jockey Club built a racetrack and training facility called Chufa Racecourse, located on the mainland, about a three-and-a-half-hour drive from Hong Kong. It's roughly as far a drive as Saratoga is from New York City, although with that drive, which I've done myself, you don't have to switch which side of the road you drive on, you do have to do that when you go from Hong Kong, once a British holding, to mainland China. Chufa opened for training last August, and this year, on March 23rd, five races were run there. Nordic Warriors now taking control with 100 metres left to go, and he's starting to clear out here for Matthew Chadwick, and Nordic Warrior will win the first race at Chufa. Now, there's still no betting whatsoever allowed in China proper, and no live broadcasts either. So the only way the races at Chufa were allowed to be shown in Hong Kong for betting purposes was on a 15-minute delay. What was it like there? And what's the future of racing in the world's most populous country? Let's get a sense of things by welcoming in for the first time to In The Gate the trainer who won the very first race held at Chufa. His name is Richard Gibson, and he joins us for a few minutes here on In The Gate. What was it like to be there at Chufa for that exhibition card? Well, you know, I think maybe in a few years' time, five, ten years' time, you, you might look at it and look back at that day as a as a real sort of highlight in your career. The Hong Kong Jockey Club have invested so many uh, billions of, of Hong Kong dollars that they've lost count, and, they, and they've, they've built this gigantic training complex 
which looks, looks quite similar to Santa Anita. It's a huge, huge, huge turf and dirt tracks. And the crowd there was full of guests from the jockey club. I think there were only about, about 5,000 VIPs. And it was great to be part of it, and, uh, and even better to be able to, to win the first big race then. There weren't that many regular spectators. I hear about 3,500 was about the number listed. So what was the energy like in the place? Well, you know, I, I've been to show jumping events in Hong Kong and where there's big VIP areas and then there's a rather smaller area for the public. And uh, it was a little bit similar to that. You know, I think perhaps the VIP area was, was over-VIP'd and the, the public <laughs> area was a little bit abandoned. I, I think they were inquisitive more than anything else. They were just checking it out. This area, Chungfa, is kind of mountainous. It's kind of a hot springs resort area. Yeah, it's about a four-hour drive from Hong Kong, up our border here from the, the big city called Shenzhen. So it'd be about two and a half hours north of Shenzhen. And yeah, you know, it's, you've got to drive two and a half hours before you hit some, some countryside in a valley, uh, agricultural area, two and a half hours north of Shenzhen. Does this... I mean, put it this way, here in the States, we have Saratoga Racecourse in upstate New York, which is also about a three-hour ride from New York City, and it's a place where people go all summer long for vacation, all kinds of other outdoor activities, and then they go to the races. Yeah, you know, I'm not, I know Saratoga well, but I'm, I'm not that familiar with different parts of China. But yeah, definitely a, a high-end tourist area with golf courses and, and hot springs. So, I mean, do you envision this becoming the summer place to be the same way Saratoga is in the States? From a tourism point of view, I, I don't think so, no. But the club have gone here because it's more of a big political picture we now hear in the press all the time about the the great bay area so it's the amalgamation the next step of of hong kong being incorporated in the south bay area with with macau and, and guangdong and guangzhou and it's a bigger political picture well in that regard i mean obviously the british are gone so hong kong is now part of china what about the people who live in Hong Kong, are they starting to feel like part of China or do they still feel like their own region? I think the Hong Kong are patriotic and very proud of their of their island and, and, the, and the success of their economy. And uh, yeah, I think there's gradual step-by-steps in, in becoming part of this Great Bay Area. How difficult, easy or accessible is Chung Fa for horsemen in Hong Kong? In other words, how many are going to bring their horses there to train as opposed to training at Sha Tin or Happy Valley? Well, there, I think there are currently, I'd say roughly about 200 horses in training up there. I, I think the numbers, club are trickle-feeding numbers into it every three to six months. It's actually training up the, the staff more than anything else. It's all the the hard facilities have all been uh, completed. It's, it's just getting the uh, staff trained up, the, the local staff trained up to work a big, a big center. What is the advantage of bringing a horse to train there, just to have some different environment, or is there something about the place? 
Yeah, I think currently in Hong Kong, uh, currently in Hong Kong, we 1,200 horses trained in Hong Kong uh, here in Sha Tin annually. And uh, I think Hong Kong would like to increase the equine population. And we have no further room to expand here in Sha Tin, hence the reason to expand in China. And, you know, obviously there's a, you know, there's a long-term plan that they would like like to race there one day when it's politically correct uh, to accept gambling. Trainer Richard Gibson is with us here on In the Gate. He was the winner of the very first race held at Chungfa Racing Facility in mainland China. Now that, of course, brings us to the 800-pound gorilla in the room, that there is still no betting allowed in mainland China. Do you see this as a little toe in the water towards that or is there really no chance of that ever happening well you know i'm just a trainer what i see from the outside is it's a step-by-step learning process and the chinese growing having confidence with the hong kong jockey club they've seen our the club's huge success and significant financial power on the island so, yeah, I'm sure that that's the, the long-term goal. When it happens, you'd, you'd have to speak to, to our CEO or, or Andrew Harding, but uh, I'm sure that plan's on the horizon. The track is oddly shaped. It's basically an egg shape where one of the turns is tighter than the other turn. And, of course, this being outside of North America, the turf track is outside of the dirt track, is that dirt track a uh, synthetic dirt or is that conventional dirt? No, you know, it's just like a chatin. You know, we we, we have an American here um, running that track, and it's a, it's a, it's a dirt track. So you are actually importing dirt horses, the kind that run here in North America as well. Well, we have twenty five percent of our program is on dirt, and we train on dirt every day. I think uh, actually it's. Still something that um, America and Hong Kong can expand on. Uh, historically, the American horses haven't done well here. and there's, there's a local bias against medication rules in America. But uh, I was at Keeneland Sales for the first, first time I'd been there. I arrived in Hong Kong last year. and I, I thought there were a load of suitable yearlings in Keeneland that um, could race well here. We could talk about the medication issue all day, but we'll leave that for another show. (laughs) Uh, But you do run your horses there on dirt, medication-free is what I'm gathering. Yeah, we have very, very strict regulation in this part of the world, and certainly ahead of uh, Australia and and UK, we have a a very strict vet regulation, and and all, all the veterinary is done by Hong Kong Jockey Club vets, so there's no outside veterinary surgeons are allowed to, to practice here. So it's, it's very controlled on, on what medication is allowed and when it's permitted to race. What feedback did you get from the Chinese officials in mainland China about Chung Fa and the execution of this exhibition day in late March? Well, I think there's no hiding the fact that you know, the Chinese have been in, in they are amazed by the Hong Kong Chocolate Club model. Uh, you know, the Hong Kong Chocolate Club model, the current turnover is 1.3 billion Hong Kong dollars every race day. So the turnover that the Chocolate Club creates has been immensely beneficial to Hong Kong society. And the 
Jockey Club are huge donors in all charities, hospitals, schools, sports centers, museums. Again, the figures you'd probably have to get from the guy from the club, but I'm sure off the top of my head, the club donated about 120 million US dollars to charity foundations um, throughout, throughout this part of the world. I really thought I'd see Haley's Comet come around before I saw horses running on mainland China. By the way, Haley's Comet 2061. But here we are. We spoke with a man who was there. Thank you so much for sharing this. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Our thanks to Richard Gibson and to Danny Gargan. Lost amidst the hand-wringing over the deaths at Santa Anita is that a far more dangerous track, statistically, is the one that gets the most eyeballs for its two marquee race days. That's right, the home of the Oaks and Kentucky Derby. Last year, reports the Courier-Journal, Churchill Downs' fatality rate was near the top of all the American tracks. Nearly three per thousand starts, compared with one at Saratoga. That high mortality rate took me aback. The Ringling Brothers Circus, with its animal acts, is gone, and no more SeaWorld shows with killer whales. Greyhound Racing's all but dead, done in by legislation. Is the racing balloon about to meet its nail? We're not supposed to cheer in the press box, so let's say my fingers are crossed that those two race days go off without a hitch. Fatalities are always bad, but if they happen then, the sport may well be thrown into a ditch. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.